Here on The Andrew Clavin Show, we try to bring you all the most exciting new developments from the world of media and entertainment. So, for instance, when Taylor Swift recently dropped her latest song entitled How Come He Dumped Me When I Put Out on the First Date from her new album, Rich, Cheap, and Incredibly Shallow, we were right there on the scene discussing something entirely different. Not to mention far more interesting, like the future of novelty socks or Mitt Romney's latest opinion. So, in that spirit today, we are here to break the news that in just over a week, CNN will be launching its new streaming service, CNN Plus, for which it will be charging $6 a month. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, Clavin, get out of here with that zany sense of humor of yours that lets you breathe fresh life into every party until it devolves into a drug-fueled orgy of degraded perversion. But no, I am not making this up. CNN is actually planning to charge people $6 a month to watch their streaming content. Just think of it. Now, when you don't watch CNN, you'll actually be saving $6 each and every month. In Joe Biden's America, this means you'll be able to buy an extra half gallon of gas or press your nose to the window of your local Costco and dream of next month when you'll have saved $12 and can actually buy something to eat. Plus, imagine all the amazing CNN content you'll be not watching to save that money. There'll be the sexy new show, Hashtag MeTubin, in which various former and current CNN employees relive their most disgusting moments of sexual degeneracy like that time Chris Cuomo took a break from associating with Jeffrey Epstein in order to grab a female colleague's buttocks. Or that time Don Lemon was accused of sticking his hand down the, down the front of a man's pants in a bar. Or that time Jeff Zucker cheated on his wife while colluding with his lover to manipulate the news about Governor Andrew Cuomo. Or that time Chris Cuomo's producer was arrested for trying to seduce children. Or, of course, that time Jeffrey Tubin masturbated on a Zoom call because he thought jerking off on screen was CNN's entire business model. A CNN spokesman says he hopes this hot new show will inspire Hollywood to make a third movie about Roger Ailes. There'll also be Chris Wallace's new show, Why Oh Why, in which Chris and Jonah Goldberg discuss their generous decision to leave the most popular news network on cable and join CNN Plus just so their fans can earn an extra $6 a month by not watching them. And then, of course, there'll be the real housewife of cable news starring Brian Stelter, who once missed a deadline so he could go to bed early and have a good cry over the pandemic, thus proving that, yes, a man really can change his gender. In his new show, Brian will share recipes and fashion tips while engaging in deep-dive discussions with his dolly and his teddy bear about why Tucker Carlson is so mean. Brian will follow that with his new show, Unemployment, which even I would pay $6 to see. CNN plans to make other big changes in their content before the entire enterprise collapses into the biggest media disaster since AOL merged with Time Warner. Up till now, CNN's programming was largely headed by white men like Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon. But CNN Plus plans to change that by having their mostly white management team hire more diverse anchors like Jar Jar Binks and still Don Lemon. All in all, the announcement of the lineup for CNN Plus really did threaten to set the cable news world on fire until police traced the call and arrested Wolf Blitzer for attempting to burn down Brett Baer's studio because the sight of someone doing real journalism made him feel so ashamed. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. 
life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, the vast right-wing conspiracy known as Klavanon continues. Today, we're going to discuss Ukrainian President Zelensky's flagrant manhood and the deeper meaning of Hunter Biden's laptop. I have to tell you, I have a piece of video on that that is unbelievable. It's just incredible. We'll have our monthly culture talk with Megan Basham as well and Carrie Severino on Joe Biden's new Supreme Court pick. Uh, thank you again for your pre-orders of The Truth and Beauty, uh, the publisher is just thrilled that so many of you have stepped up and ordered it early. It means they, they will produce more books. It just makes it really easy because all those pre-orders are counted on the day the book is published. So it makes it possible that we will put this book on the bestseller list, which would be close to a miracle. And I would be so grateful to you if you do that. Uh, I think you'll like the book. I think the book will really change the way. I think it'll make the Gospels more meaningful to you. And if you don't haven't read the Gospels before, I think it'll give you a new way to think about them. Uh, so thank you for that. Please come on and subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review. That is also extremely helpful. All these things kind of help us out. If you are participating in the show and in the book publishing, it, it just makes all the difference in the world. Uh, go on YouTube and subscribe there. And of course, if you ring that little bell, it'll go ping. And if you hear that ping, something's deeply, deeply wrong with you. Uh, you may st soon start to hear voices uh, telling you to do things that you really shouldn't be doing. Don't listen to the voices, just listen to the ping. And then we'll give you incredible uh, exclusive content that you're not getting on the show. You won't get it anywhere else, but on that YouTube station, uh, as well as the ping, which you'll also get if you... <laughs> <laughs> Even I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. But if you leave a comment on the YouTube thing and it is just absolutely disgusting, we'll include it on the show because that's the kind of thing we do here. Today's comment is from Jerry Yaffe, who says, Clavin's shirt blends so well with the background that he looks like a floating head at first. <laughs> At first, I was a bit disturbed, but then I was reminded of the Wizard of Oz from his bald head and was comforted in the thought that I'm actually over the rainbow making the past two years a dream. And, you know, there is something to this. I am like the Wizard of Oz, except that I actually am just a floating bald head uh, and there is no one behind the curtain so that you can take whatever you want from that. When it's time to retire, you don't want to find out that stuff has been happening to your money that you didn't know about. If you've got a 401k or IRA or similar retirement plan, the government actually controls it. They decide how much you can borrow and when you have to pay it back, and you'll owe taxes and penalties for taking money out too soon or waiting too long, even though it's your money. Thanks to our skyrocketing national debt, who knows how much you'll have to pay in taxes during a retirement that could last 30 years. Bank on yourself is a better way to grow and protect your hard-earned money. You can get access to your money for any purpose with no questions asked and even use it for purchases or opportunities without interrupting the growth of those dollars. This is the strategy famous businesses use when no banker would lend them a dime and almost anyone can do it. Your plan doesn't go backward when the markets tumble. Both your principal and growth are locked in. You have control of your money without government penalties or restrictions on how much income you can take or when you can take it. You can get a free report with all the details of how adding bank on yourself to your financial plan can help you take back control of your money. Just go to bankonyourself.com slash Andrew. That's bankonyourself.com slash 
Andrew. This information is for educational purposes only. It's not a solicitation for the purchase of any financial product. All guarantees are based on the claims-paying ability of the insurer. So the more I have thought about it, the more I think that the what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening with President Zelensky and the fight here to reclaim our schools uh, by banning critical race theory, which is just racism in another form, uh, and preventing the grooming of children, which is what it is when these clowns talk to our six, seven, and eight-year-olds about their weird, weird theories about sexuality. I do not know. Uh, you know, the left and pedophilia have somehow made common cause together, and they want to bring this into the school. And somehow I think the, that these two stories, the reaction to Zelensky and this fight by parents, by brave parents in Virginia and Florida and other places, and by Brian uh, DeSantis, Governor DeSantis in Florida, uh, I think this is one story. This is one big story. I was watching uh, this amazing moment this week when Zelensky came before Congress virtually, which is really important because this war, like everything now, is actually happening online. And he came on to a standing ovation, trying to get, he's begging for more help, he wants more weapons, he wants more money, and he wants a no-fly zone, uh, you know, which people just think is just too dangerous to start with it when you're dealing with a, a power like Russia. But the reaction to him was absolutely electric. Here is just a moment of him appealing. He's appealing to Joe Biden, but he knows that Joe Biden isn't in charge. So he's also appealing to the Congress, which has been uh, pushing Biden along uh, in a bipartisan way. And here he is. Strong doesn't mean weak. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world for human rights, for freedom, for the right to live decently and to die when your time comes and not when it's wanted by someone else, by your neighbor. Uh, obviously, I, I meant Ron DeSantis before I said Brian DeSantis, mixing him with Brian De Palma in my mind, but Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, and we'll be talking about him more. So he comes in, he says, you've got to be strong. Strong is not weak. You know, you have to be ready to die for what you believe. Uh Big standing ovation, huge welcome in Congress, just pressing our weak president for uh, more money, uh, more aid, more weapons. Some calling for a no-fly zone, which I don't think is a very good idea because that means that we have, we have to police the no-fly zone, which means we will be in dogfights with Russian pilots, which could lead uh, to a, uh, a nuclear war, which is something we don't want. Um, but it's a positive thing. I, I, I know a lot of people on the right uh, are complaining about this. They're saying, why, why do we believe all these things that, uh, from people who've lied before? But this is something that is real. It's really happening. It really is bad when somebody invades another country uh, simply because he wants to build his own empire. Uh, and, and it's good that the West, which has been disjointed and falling apart and growing weak, has come together uh, suddenly and said, no, we have to stand against this. And it was an emotional speech. It got everybody uh, ginned up. There are bad arguments. There's no question there are bad arguments going on on both sides. Um, the uh, argument that you hear from people who don't want us to get into a deeper war, that old people who are not going to be in the war are sending young people to fight and die, or people who aren't going to be in the war are sending people to be in the war. That's true of every war. That is always true. Whether you're fighting Hitler uh, and it's necessary, or whether you're getting into World War I and it's a mistake, old people who don't fight are always sending young people to die in wars. Wars stink. Wars are bad in every possible way, except sometimes they are necessary. So that is not a, a good argument. Uh, but there are also bad, uh, good, bad arguments for... Um, 
for getting into the war or getting too far into the war far, farther than we have to. For instance, here is something that uh, that Zelensky also said uh, when he talked about um, he talked about it's being like Pearl Harbor. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th, a terrible day in 20, 2001, when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories, in battlefields, when innocent people were attacked. Now, that's a bad argument because we haven't been attacked. And that's the whole point. The whole point is we don't have an immediate interest uh, in in Ukraine. We do have an extended interest in that we have shown weakness to Putin. We have dismantled our energy uh, supplies so that he has become stronger. We showed how incompetent and stupid we are in our withdrawal from Afghanistan, how badly uh, that was done. And that means that we incited this from an evil guy who wants to rebuild the Russian empire. Uh, we incited him to, we gave him the signal that he could move. And that means the way we react to this is going to give signals to China when they talk about taking over uh, Taiwan uh, and Iran attacking Israel. So that is the, the best argument for at least taking action. Uh, I don't think it's a good reason to actually uh, get into a face-to-face -face clash with the Russians that could lead to nuclear war because, you know, Ukraine is not in NATO. We don't have a, a, an obligation to do that. And so until we do have that obligation, even though this may invite that to come, we want to hope that it doesn't come. Uh, we still want to uh, bide, bide our time and stay back. But we do have to support them. And I think it's a good thing, a good thing for us to come together with the free nations of the world, with the rest of NATO, uh, and, and make Russia a, the pariah it should be because of Putin, not because of the Russian people, obviously. So many Russian people out in the streets protesting this war. The courage that that takes, the absolute you know, fortitude that that takes to stand up in a place where you get arrested and beaten and put in prison and disappeared for standing up against Putin to get go out there in the street. It's not like uh, here where people pretend they're being brave when they're not. This is a this is a real thing that's happening in Russia. Incredibly brave, and all of it reminded people, with good reason, of when Churchill. It was it was after World War, uh, after Pearl Harbor, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, because America didn't want to get into that war either. And with also with good reason, it was happening far away. We didn't see why it was our business. We had just been in World War One, and people didn't like it. Uh, and and Churchill came after Pearl Harbor when we realized the war had come. And this this is what he said. He said, "Now we are together." And he, he made a really interesting comment. Prodigious hammer strokes have been needed to bring us together today. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a, a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servants. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will for their own safety and for the good of all, walk together in majesty, in justice, and in peace. 
So it's easy to look at that and think, oh, by, wow, those were the days when people could still, still speak English. But Americans couldn't speak English then either. Only Churchill could. Uh, and he was absolutely fantastic. And I love that idea that he could come before Congress and basically say a heavenly plan is playing itself out and we are privileged to take part of it on the side of the good. That's a very beautiful, beautiful sentiment. And it did finally, finally move uh, America after America was attacked, remember, after it was actually attacked by the Japanese, it moved America into the war, which was the decisive moment. Now, looking at that, looking at Churchill and thinking about what a different world it is, that's when I started to think, you know, this story of the the reaction that Zelensky caused, his his courage, uh, his his patriotism, his dedication to his country. You can say, well, he's trying to draw us into something. You bet he is. You bet he is. That doesn't mean we have to go, but you bet he is. He's trying to save his country. And so he may be asking us for something we can't give him, but it is right for him to ask. It may be right for him to ask and right for us to say no. Those two things can be true. But just the sight of this, this the manhood, the uh, the strength, the patriotism, all these things that the left has, has decried here, has attacked here, manhood and patriotism. These are things that the left has been assaulting all this time, and now suddenly when they see it, uh, they're, oh my goodness, I love this. This is a wonderful thing. You know, this is why I think that it it is the same story, a connected story with what's happening in our schools, what Ron DeSantis and parents are trying to keep from happening in our schools, this attack on uh, this this inculcation of racism through critical race theory and this attack on the sexuality of children, this sick, perverted, disgusting attack. And they, they call uh, DeSantis's bill the Don't Say Gay Bill. No, it is an anti-groomer bill. It is an, it's to stop people from grooming our children uh, sexually. This is the story on both sides of a West so strong for so long, so rich for so long, so safe for so long, that we thought we could lay aside the basic truths of life and the basic moral values on which freedom stands. So now we're standing by, we're not helpless, but we're weak, while the free world comes under violent attack from Putin directly, but also from China too, remember? China and uh, Russia put out a statement during the Olympics where they said, we are coming, we're coming to take over the world, we're coming to throw over the world order, get rid of this democracy stuff, get rid of this U.S.-led world order. They mean it, they're serious, they're really coming. So now we stand by and we're weak. And we have to think, and that, you know, this is the old enemy. It's, you know, it's China and Russia now, but it's the old enemy of tyranny. And we're watching the West fumbling to dis- rediscover what we stand for, who we are, and what values actually define and unite us. And the left is trying to destroy those things, but the majority of the country is stumbling forward and trying to find this. And the question we face, and this is the question that's been being debated on the right for quite some time now, is whether we can find our way back to those values that are the building blocks of freedom without destroying the freedom that stands on top of them. You know, think about the image. You know, you know the game Jenga, I'm sure there's the tower where you pull out the sticks, try to, not to make it fall down. If you think of freedom as the top of that tower, freedom is the top of that tower, but it stands on values. It stands on bricks, uh, faith in God and moral behavior and brave men like Zelensky who are willing to protect life and women who are willing to dedicate themselves to creating life and nurturing life and respect for the home those men and women have and protection of the weak and protection of the small, protection of women when they are vulnerable because they are taking care of children. When you pull out those blocks, you pull out those blocks, freedom, the top block starts to fall. It can't float in midair. 
So now when you want to rebuild, you want to rebuild that tower and rebuild those values and put the blocks back in, the question is, can you keep that freedom up there while you are rebuilding the values or or are you going to force those values on people or try to force those values on people uh, in a way that destroys the freedom and hope, well, one day, maybe in a thousand years, freedom will come back again if we can build up those values, if we can get back to faith, if we can get back to family, if we can get back to men who are men and women who are women, if we can get back to that, then maybe we can have freedom again. You know, that's a long time away. We want to actually see if we can rebuild the values. Um, and that's why... That's why so much of what we're looking for centers on our schools, you know, in Virginia and in Florida, but all over centers in our schools and what these clowns, these sick, perverted people on the left, and also these racists on the left, because they're not, pardon me, they're not necessarily the same people, but, but they're, they want to send stuff into the schools. And you have to remember that even in a free society, schools are not a freedom zone. You have to remember this. This is important. Free schools are always a place where the values that you want the society to have are inculcated in your children, are taught to your children. You are, you are persuading and teaching and training your children to believe in the, these values so that later when you have debates, when you have actions, they can make choices in keeping with the traditions that built the freedom that they have. There's not schools are not just like you can say anything with that ban. Oh, you know, I, I hear guys, I, I hear all these people like it's, it's terrible. They're trying to ban CRT. Well, no, no, you are trying to inculcate values and we have to have that discussion about what values we're going to teach our children. You know, one of the ways that people used to do this to teach children is they had, they would make children write little slogans or, or Bible verses in their notebooks. This was to practice penmanship, but it was also to learn the Bible verses and learn the moral lessons. And these were called, these little phrases were called copybook headings. And I'm sure you've heard Rudyard Kipling's poem or heard about his poem, The Gods of the Copybook Headings. What happens? What happens when those values, those little slogans, those things on which your society stands are taken away? And he talks about a time when all those values are taken away. And he says, till our women had no more children and the men lost reason and faith. And when that happens, he says, after that is accomplished and the brave new world begins, when all men are paid for existing and no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us and as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. So in other words, you let those values go, they're going to come back in a way you don't like, as that's what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. And a lot of the modern conservative, you know, the, a lot of the modern conservative movement started with the question of schooling with William F. Buckley's book in 1951, uh, God and Man at Yale. And the, 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 subtext, the subheading was the superstitions of academic freedom. And Buckley was complaining about what was called academic freedom, which was supposed to mean that we should have free debate, free of all values, because values constrained debate. You know, you shouldn't be able to say, no, you can't say that because of our values. And what Buckley was saying was that's a, it's a trick. It is a trick that basically by saying we'll have no values to our discussions, it was saying we're going to let leftist values rule because the leftist values were allowed to come in. Uh, and the lovable, occasionally lovable Michael Knowles wrote his book uh, Speechless about this. He said the right fell for this. They fell for this so that when the new leftist orthodoxies came in, uh, like you have to be gay and you have to be uh, racist and you have to do all the things that the left wants you to be, we didn't say, oh, no, wait, your orthodoxies are wrong. 
our orthodoxy should be taught. We shouldn't let God be chased out of school. We shouldn't let values and morality be chased out of school. We said, oh, you're violating academic freedom. And what Knowles is arguing is that that was, we fell into their trap, right? We shouldn't have said that. Uh, and so, so now when we try to protest wokeism, the left just turns that argument back on us. They just say, uh, well, now in banning critical race theory, uh, you're not allowing us to teach history. And in not allowing teachers to groom children for sexual perversity, you're telling us don't say gay. It's a don't say gay bill. But these are just lies, right? We're telling, we're telling you to keep your racism and keep your perversions out of our school because they've kind of, you know, it's just, it's just ugly that these things have seeped uh, like pus uh, over elite opinion. And, and our powerful people, you know, the, the people have fallen for this. The powerful people, the elite people have fallen for us. But if our, if our freedom is endowed in us by our creator, as it says in our founding documents, right? If our freedom is endowed in us by our creator, we have to be able in public schools to teach our children about their creator, who that creator is, what is the nature of a creator who endowed them with their rights. You can't just say, oh no, no prayer in school, if we believe that our freedom was endowed in us by our creator as our founding documents say, right? If our freedom depends on the idea that all men are created equal, meaning all people are created equal, then you can't teach them racism. You cannot come in there and say that there's some essential uh, fact of whiteness that makes you an oppressor and some essential fact of blackness that makes you somehow a virtuous uh, victim. You cannot do that. You may not do that. It is right to ban them. And if our freedom depends on families, we should be allowed to teach men the responsibilities of men and women the work of women. This is something we should be allowed to do or at least discuss. And you know, look, it could be that our souls have have no gender. You know, I think that there's a good argument for that. Uh, St. Paul says in Christ there's no man and woman, and Jesus says that the angels don't marry. It may be that our souls are not gendered, but that's all the more reason why we should learn the why our souls are placed in gendered bodies and what that requires of us to do and what jobs we have been assigned. The left talks about gender assignment. They think it's an operation. I think it's an act of God. I think God actually does assign us a gender, assign our possibly genderless souls a gender by putting us in bodies and mean us to do things. So when the USA... Uh, you know, today names Rachel Levine as one of the women of the year when a big strapping man like Leah Thomas wins an NCAA swimming championship. That is not just a, a, a rebellion against societal norms. That is an actual violation of the rules of creation. And I think we are, should be allowed to talk about this and basically preach the opposite and teach the opposite in our schools. And, you know, I just have to relate this one story. I read this story. I had to read this story three times before I was sure I understood it. Here's a story in Ukraine. And somehow the big issue to the press in Ukraine is the plight of transgender Ukrainians. <laughs> I can't even believe they're talking about this. But there's a story about one Ukrainian. And I, again, I hope I got this right because I read it again and again. He was, She was born a woman, but now declares herself a man, right? And when the war started, you know, men are not allowed, fighting age men are not allowed to leave Ukraine. They're, they have to stay there and fight, but the women and children are allowed to get out. So now this woman 
who became a man suddenly dresses up as a woman in order to escape Ukraine. And the press is covering this as if it was an act of heroism, as if there was something oppressive in the Ukrainian uh, state that was not allowing this woman who declared herself a man to dress up as a woman in order to avoid fighting. So in other words, he, she wanted to, the name of a man but she didn't want the responsibilities that come with being in the body of a man, which means the entire thing is a grift. It's a grift. I mean, if you want to be a woman, but you don't want the responsibilities of a woman, then you are, you know, then just declaring yourself a woman is, is a grift for Leah Thomas to just say, oh yeah, I'm a woman, so now I'm winning all the races. How about that? That's a grift. If you are a woman who declares herself a man, but when the fighting time comes, you dress up as a woman to get out of the country. That's a grift. It is a grift. And it's a grift being set forward by sick people. And that's why when we see Zelensky step forward and actually be a man, suddenly we think, well, what do we think? I, I can't remember. Now I'm, everything I say contradicts everything I've said before. And we don't know where to go, where to find the truth we've lost and how to speak the truth that we've lost without violating freedom because we've been convinced that freedom is a complete is complete chaos with no values whatsoever but freedom stands on values and we have to be able to teach those things and you know the way I, I see forward because I, I I I do not think we can force this on people we cannot force people to live the way we want them to live but there are, uh, are two ideas that I think are important one is an idea that Ben Shapiro has been working on which I really support him in kind of working this out which is the idea of more localism of allowing uh communities, cities, states to have their own values. This is one of the reasons I'm very much praying and hoping that the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade so each state can make their own rules about abortion and then we will have moral federalism. We will have different kinds of ways to live in each state and people can move from state to state not just to get a job but also to live in the kind of world they want to live and also be good because God might stop punishing us for killing babies which would be, I don't want to speak for God, I don't want to say that's what he's doing but that's what he's doing. <laughs> So, so that would be a good thing too. So localism is a good thing. And, and the, the one thing you have to understand about localism, that means that you have to live. You can't just sit around and talk about, oh, those rotten gays, those rotten this. Because it's not gay people. Gay people didn't redefine marriage. Straight people redefined marriage when they said you could just get divorced for any reason, right? You know, it's, you have to take responsibility. And that means you have to live out the meaning of your creed. You have to be faithful in your marriage. You have to support uh, your wife through work so that your wife can take care of children and maybe make sacrifices in her work uh, that, that are painful for her. You have to do the things. Because remember, living well is not easy. Living well is hard. That's why people don't want to do it. That's the left's, that's the left's seduction, is that it's easier not to live as a man. It's easier not to live as a woman. It's easier to just get the stuff you want in the moment. And the other thing is, is cultural, which as I think, you know, we elevate, we like to elevate manhood and tough guys and all this stuff. And, and a lot of men disdain women. They disdain what women do. They disdain home homemakers. They talk about uh, they talk about women as if they were less uh, when they take care of the, their homes and when they take care of their children. And and I I think first of all I think that's weak men who do it. But I think that even weaker men are the men who secretly love the women who do that but will not say so. Uh, and so I, I think that the culture has to become bolder, ever bolder. And it's not enough. You know I'm I'm thrilled that the Daily Wire is going into the culture, but it's not enough that one place does it, and it's not enough to do 
it uh, just for fun. I think we have to do it with the values that we mean to put forward, not preaching those values, simply displaying those values uh, and, and showing people what it is we admire. And look, I don't know if localism and culture are going to be enough to save the West. I don't know if they're going to be enough to bring the values back on which our freedoms stand. But as the Ukrainians are teaching us, and as I like to say, you can lose a fight, but you can't win a surrender. So I was joking before about hoping you could save up enough money to get something to eat, but it's not really a joke. Grocery prices feel like they've doubled, but good rancher's prices have stayed low and affordable. Once you subscribe, your price at Good Ranchers never goes up. Your best price is locked in for life, so you can shop Good Ranchers for all your beef, chicken, and seafood needs. Good Ranchers only sells 100% American meat from local farms and ranches. They have signature steak burgers and Wagyu burgers that are packed full of flavor. Their pre-trimmed and pre-marinated chicken breasts are absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. I had some last night. Plus, their packaging makes it easy to cook what you want and save the rest, which keeps you from wasting anything. Get your 30 buck discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken today. Go to goodranchers.com slash Clavin to save on the quality you've been looking for. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store by sourcing everything from local farms and shipping it to your door. Use my code Clavin and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your $30 savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers American meat delivered. You have to know how to spell Clavin though. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There's no no ease in Clayton. There are no easy So how does Hunter Biden's laptop play into what's happening now? Because it really does. I and mean, this is a huge deal. The, des- the desire to restore our values by force, which is essentially giving up. It's essentially saying freedom is done. Freedom is the problem. We can't keep the top block of freedom because the Jenga tower has disappeared. So we just have to restore it by force. This is the reason that too many right-wingers are flirting, and some left-wingers as well, are flirting with authoritarianism, are falling in love with Putin, the strong man, you know, or, or Thomas Friedman on the left falling in love with China. If only we could do the things that China does, if only we could enforce these values instead of convincing people and arguing people and educating people to do these things. Putin, to me, represents the paradox that we're facing. He is a strong man. There's no question about his strength. He is a strong man, and that attracts people, but he's not a good man. He's a bad man. He's an evil man. He's a wicked man. And so it's kind of like watching The Sopranos. You know, you watch Tony Soprano, and you kind of admire him because he's smart and tough, and he's in charge and all this stuff, but he is a bad person, and that is not a complete man. He is a strong man, but he's not a complete man. And this is how you get people on the right supporting um, supporting Putin, like this guy who I really do not like. This, this he, I just find him a, a little weasel, this guy, Nick Fuentes. And every time I say this, somebody says, no, you should have him on to debate. I don't want to have him on to debate because I, I don't even respect his ideas. He is a racist. He is an anti-Semite. And he recently said, said this about the war. We continue to support Tsar Putin in the war effort. Can we get an 07 in chat? We, you know, we want to just keep in mind, we want to keep our brave soldiers in the white, blue, and red in our prayers and in our thoughts as they continue to liberate Ukraine from the great Satan and from the evil empire in the world, which is the United States. So, of course, uh, our thoughts and prayers, our hearts go out to you, the pride of the Tsar, the pride of Moscow. We continue to root for them as they 
liberate Ukraine. So I want to be fair to him. I'm not obviously not a Fentes fan. I do think he is a white supremacist. I do think he is an anti-Semite. And I think he's kind of a putz. <laughs> but I think he is being ironic here in that what he is saying is he he wants Russia to humiliate America. He not because he wants the Ukrainians to suffer, but because he wants America to be humiliated because he feels that it has lost its values. It has lost its way. Okay. And that's what he's saying. And so that means that in order to to fight guys like Fuentes and stand up against guys like Fuentes, we need an elite, a leadership class that stands for the values that I've been talking about, right? It's it's not every, we don't need the majority to stand for the values. We need the clerisy and the middle class to stand for those values. We need a a media and a leadership uh, and a, and a uh, academy that actually does stand for those values because that will support the country and turn it in the right direction. And when you see those all those places corrupted, it weakens us. It weakens us, and it gives guys like Fuentes credence. It makes people say, well, I'm fine. I'm seeing no values here. I'm not seeing values in the White House. I'm not seeing values on, on the, in the news media. I'm not seeing values that the guy's teaching me in college and in high school. So, but, but at least Fuentes has values, so I'm going to follow him. At least this racist has values, so I'm going to follow him. So the New York Times, a former newspaper, uh, yesterday or the day before, did a deep dive into the DOJ investigation into Hunter Biden. A tr- there's a Trump appointee who has not been fired, who is still investigating <laughs> Hunter Biden. God love him. One of the things they're investigating is whether Hunter, you remember that Hunter uh, was given this uh, uh, sinecure th- a- advising a Ukrainian energy investment firm called Burisma. Uh, and he was, it was paying a huge salary. I can't even remember what it was, a huge salary to advise them, wink, wink. And we knew he was doing this basically, they were doing this basically to hook him up to the big guy, as he calls him, Joe Biden who was then vice president. And the New York Times says he is being investigated to see if he has violated FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which requires disclosure to the Justice Department of lobbying or public relations assistance on behalf of foreign clients. Now, about 412 (laughs) paragraphs into this story, way, way down on this story, Here's a paragraph. It says, people familiar with the investigation said prosecutors have examined emails between Mr. Biden, Mr. Archer, and others about Burisma and other foreign business activity. Those emails were obtained by the New York Times. They were obtained by the New York Times from a catch of files that appear to have come from a laptop abandoned by Mr. Biden in a Delaware repair shop. The email and others in the catch were authenticated by people familiar with them and with the investigation in some of the emails, Mr. Biden displayed a familiarity with Farah and a desire to avoid triggering it. Suddenly, the Hunter Biden laptop is discovered by the New York Times. And people said, oh, the New York Times has confirmed the story. The New York Times has not the credibility to confirm a story put out by a much better paper than them, the New York Post. The New York Post has better journalists. They are more honest. They are more direct. And they reported the story during the election, the 2020 Biden-Trump election. And everybody said it was not true, right? Everybody, I want to play a clip for you. This is from the second debate moderated by NBC's Kristen Welker, uh, when Biden uh, talked about his values and Trump came back at him about this laptop. It's a long clip, but there's so much to talk about in it that I really have to play the whole thing. So it's just a little over a minute. The character of the country is on the ballot. 
our characters in the ballot. Look at us closely. Let me ask them, follow- me. please respond, if and then we're going to have follow-up This stuff is true questions. about Russia, Ukraine, China, other countries, Iraq. If this is true, then he's a corrupt politician. Right. So don't give me the stuff about how you're this innocent baby. Joe, they're calling you a corrupt politician. Nobody's hey, President calling. Trump, I want to stay hell. on the issue of race. We're talking about the issue. from hell. President Trump, we're talking about race right now, and I do want to stay on the issue of race. President Trump, you I have to respond to that. Please. Because, look, Very there are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plant. They have said that this is, has all the care. Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now yeah. another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And that's exactly be. what, is this that's where you're exactly going? what This is going. where he's going. The that, laptop right. is Russia, yes. Russia, Gentlemen, Russia? I want to stay on the issue of race. You okay? have to be kidding. Here Mr. we go President? again with Russia. Now, I I want you to consider the levels of corruption that are revealed in that, I don't know what it was, maybe one minute and 10 seconds, something like that. In that one minute and 10 second clip, it's an amazing, it's an amazing clip. Biden is lying. Biden is corrupt. Okay. And Biden, you may have noticed this, but Biden is now the president of the United States. So he knows about this. He knows this is true. He's sitting there lying and saying, oh, my character is so much better than Trump. Trump, every word out of Trump's mouth is true, Right. Kristen Welker is cutting Trump off, but letting Biden speak. She's obviously trying to protect Biden to get back on the subject of race, which is always from the left, a diversion, right? So so NBC is, I mean, let's remember, Kristen Welker is on MSNBC all the time. So that the idea that she should be moderating a debate, she's a leftist. Why should she be uh, moderating, moderating a debate? So she's corrupt. And NBC is corrupt for sending her out there. Uh, Biden talks about more than 50 former senior former senior intelligence officials, called it Russian disinformation. So they were corrupt. They were lying. Everyone in the press did not cover this, including the New York Times, who went out of their way to say it wasn't real. 60 Minutes uh, said to Trump's face, it wasn't real. It can't be confirmed. Like, Like they made any effort to confirm it. They never did, right? So they're corrupt. Our media, really almost all the media, almost all the media now is they're corrupt. And that's in this thing. So we've got the Biden, president of the United States, the press, uh, these intelligence, these former intelligence guys, who some of them very high up. When the New York Post was banned from Twitter and Facebook, so they're corrupt. So they were corrupt and they were lying. And when the Times finally pulled this time, this is an old New York Times trick. They cover the thing late when it doesn't matter anymore because the election is over. And then they can say, well, we covered that. What are you talking about? Even now, the networks are not picking this story up. That level of corruption, that throw-going level of, of our leadership corruption, because they have lost their values, because they know they are defending values that the people do not want. They offend common sense. They offend creation. They offend the actual creation we see in front of us, everything they're teaching us, and they endanger our children, and they are spreading racism, all these things that they are doing, and they are corrupt. They have to lie. They have to lie, but that line makes them corrupt. This gives credence to the Fuentes of the world. When Fuente says, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, I hope Russia wins because we're so corrupt. What's our defense? What's our defense against it? And and again, I cannot emphasize enough how deeply I dislike Fuentes and what he stands for. 
But in order to defend him, you have to have something else. You can't just talk. You can't just suddenly say, oh, yeah, we must tell the truth. Oh, the press is really important when the press is as dirty as any dirty politician could possibly be. It's hard to even wave our flag, our beautiful flag for this beautiful country that we had until the left gutted it of its values. It's hard to do that when all of these people are corrupt. And Biden now you know, he's, he's trying to blame everything on Putin. But no, no, Putin is an evil guy. And what Putin is doing is evil. But this, you know, remember this Green New Deal that Biden fell for, that AOC falls for, that they all fall, fall for, is financed in part by Putin. We know this now that the Russians have been paying uh, money. Now, everybody it, it understands that this was a mistake. Everybody who is a serious person, who is a serious, honest person, understands that this Green New Deal was a mistake. Uh, Kimberly Strassel writes about it in the Wall Street Journal today. She says, Germany's government is stockpiling coal, expediting terminals for liquefied natural gas. Europe is working to get more gas through pipelines from Norway and Azerbaijan. Poland plans new nuclear plants. The UK may start onshore fracking and ramp up North Sea drilling. Norway plans to expand Arctic... Uh, Arctic explorations. What's Biden doing? He's getting TikTok influencers to tell you that the reason gas prices are going through the roof is because of Putin. Why is gas so expensive and why is the United States inflation rate at a four-time decade high? I had the opportunity to ask the White House why gas down the street is $7 and here's what they said. The obvious reason we're getting out of a two-year pandemic when use goes up, price goes up. But the call was predominantly about Ukraine and Russia, so how does that relate? Russia is one of the top three producers of oil, and it is actually their number one revenue source. So obviously, I, I cut her off because I'm running out of time, but I have to say, obviously, this woman is telling the truth or she wouldn't look like that. God wouldn't make her look as beautiful as she is if he didn't want us to believe her. But we don't need her because we've got the media to lie to us, uh, the actual mainstream media. We don't need them. They're just at the same level of, uh, as this girl from TikTok. Many politicians act as though it's President Biden who caused inflation and that he can fix this. No, I mean, you know, he did not cause the war which caused prices to surge. It was the Trump administration that overspent and drove up inflation. That's Trump's fault. And you heard the president of the United States Council say Putin's price hike. He used that phrase that these are Putin's price hikes. Putin price hike. Putin's price hike. Putin's price hike. Putin's price hike. Putin's price hike is a great way to message it. Blaming Putin's war in Ukraine as a prime contributor. Yeah. There is some credence to that. 100%. The New York Times fact check about this was pretty explicit, saying Republicans wrongly blame Biden for rising gas prices. It makes sense that Republicans would pounce on President Biden. Republicans don't do anything except criticize Joe Biden. This isn't anything but a ploy for the midterm elections. 80% of Americans say that they're willing to pay higher prices. Uh, Americans are okay with paying a little more at the pump. We got used to $2 gas. Yep. And, I also and that's the problem. <laughs> Here's Joe Biden during the election, another, another debate clip. Number one, no more subsidies for fossil fuel industry. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. Ends. 
just because they're lying doesn't mean the opposite is the truth. I know I'm asking for uh, a lot of nuance from us, but we have to be the good guys. We have to do this. They are corrupt, but that doesn't mean the opposite of what they're saying is true. I'm telling us that I'm telling you that you have to find the truth and you have to live the truth in order to bring them down. This administration is one of the it is the worst I've ever seen in in America. That doesn't make Putin right. It doesn't make Putin right. It just means it's hard for us to defend ourselves and to rebuild the values that hold our freedom up when our elites have abandoned those values. And that means we have to get out there and start to make ourselves known, make ourselves present to businesses, make ourselves present to schools, and make ourselves felt at the election booth. We cannot give up. It is not given to us to give up. Despair is not just a sin. It's bad strategy. We have to keep fighting, but it is going to be a very difficult fight because we have let them come so far. So, you know, I've been touting this new Ring Alarm to go with your Ring video doorbell, but now there's even more because Ring Alarm has gone pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. Ring Alarm Pro helps protect your entire home and the Wi-Fi it runs on. With Ring Alarm Pro, Ring combined a home security system with a Wi-Fi router. This thing helps protect your home and your network You have a secure network with a crazy strong signal for all the devices across your home. And I'm sure, like me, you have a lot, a lot of devices. Now, when you're out or traveling, everything at home is protected and connected and will stay that way. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, it's an amazing deal. You get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. If anything happens, professional monitoring will call and can request emergency services. You may not have known, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm, and now they've gone pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Clavin. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin. If anyone comes to your door, you can ask them how to spell Clavin. If they know, then get rid of them. All right, it is time once again for our monthly visit with Megan Basham, the Daily Wire's own uh, entertainment reporter who has been covering the culture uh, for 15 years, which on the right is actually a lifetime to have somebody who actually knows something about the culture. So we're always glad to talk to her. Megan, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking on the show, and you have been writing about the question of President uh, Zelensky's uh, flagrant manhood, uh, the fact that uh, <laughs> that we're watching this guy basically single-handedly, uh, you know, defend his country and call on the West to step up against a tyrant. And it's getting this reaction, has gotten this reaction online of people starting to say, oh, yeah, I remember that's what a man looks like. First of all, tell us how that came up. How how did that get into the conversation? Well, you know, it's been sort of funny to me to watch the reaction to Zelensky because, you know, here is this culture that we have right now where everyone has been talking about toxic masculinity, particularly amongst conservatives. They've been talking about cults of toughness as a very negative thing. And they've been talking about, I've heard references to drinking liberal tears jokes as sort of a negative example of masculine aggression. (laughs) I know, no fun at all. So you're hearing a lot of stuff like this. And then Zelensky comes onto the stage and all of these sort of progressive, even progressive women 
are reacting to him like he just said rock auto on the world stage. <laughs> All of them are suddenly writing these essays about the crushes they have on him, how attractive they find him. And it's fascinating that once you removed the virtues of masculinity, the display of masculinity from our own cultural debate, the, the reaction was completely different. They're all very attracted to it. They find it very appealing. And so that was really interesting to me because he has been very savvy about how he has used social media. And one of the sort of turns that I heard from the progressives who have been warning about masculinity is that, well, what he's doing is um, actually being masculine. He's not performing masculinity. My take was that, that that's not actually true. He is performing it. He's very savvy in putting it on social media and making sure that it's reaching Western ears and eyes via the press. So that was kind of the argument of going, no, you have to perform masculinity in somewhat public ways in order for people to value it. So it's been very fascinating to watch this argument and debate take place. That's a, that is a really interesting point because, you know, in some ways, the left is always saying, oh, this is a social construction or masculinity and femininity or performance. And there's some, there is some truth to that, but you are performing it in order to bring it into the world and in order to bring it into being. You know, is there, is there a way in which Christianity, I mean, Christianity has become in many churches almost entirely female. And, you know, I sometimes think I sometimes think in The Merchant of Venice that Shakespeare has uh, Portia dress up as a man to defend the quality of mercy because he's saying in some ways that that Christianity elevates uh, female values, more gentle values. Does the Christian culture have a problem with masculinity? I mean, I think you have to look at the fact who's attending churches and say that, yeah, it, it does. I think we have a problem of male leadership. I mean, we're getting to this place where so many women feel comfortable in churches and so many men feel that it's off-putting. I mean, that, that's not the history of Martin Luther. This is not the sort of muscular, robust, argumentative, masculine Christianity that you know nails the 95 theses to the door. And I feel like that is what a lot of men are starting to feel. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but you're hearing a lot of young men starting to talk about that. And they're talking about it very vigorously. And it felt like these articles, these essays are a way to put them down and put them back into their corner, particularly from a lot of, I won't call them progressive, but I will say progressive light women within church leadership circles. I particularly highlighted a professor and religious news columnist who has said, you know, these things are very toxic. They're, uh, they're, they're creating a rugged warrior Jesus. There's a particular book that all of these people have been citing, and it's a book called Jesus and John Wayne. And it argues that conservatives, Two of my heroes, I don't. right? <laughs> yeah. That can, but and it, they're citing it as a very negative thing that conservative Christians have bought into this vision of Christianity that is very John Wayne and wants a strong man. Now, I think you can go, okay, we we don't want a belligerent Jesus, but at the same time, we don't want to cut off those parts of him that were very willing to confront Pharisees, for example. I mean, you you don't get a soft, gentle tone explicitly and exclusively from Jesus throughout the Gospels. And that's kind of what they're claiming. And when you look at it, you go, here's a figure who was perfectly willing in defense of those he came to save to say, you nest of vipers, you you whitewashed tombs. That, that's not exactly a gentle tone. 
You know, I I can't find a a single place in the gospel where Jesus says a nice thing, where he's actually nice. You know, I mean, he is incredibly, he is rock solid. He stands up to the Roman Empire. Actually, he actually dies and brings the Roman Empire down. So he's not, he's not a a nice guy. You know, he's just a a guy who believes, I mean, love is not always a nice thing. Love is sometimes uh, requires a tremendous amount of strength to express in a corrupt world. And I think that that's, that's a ridiculous take on Jesus, uh, that he's not uh, manly. He may be above manhood and, and woman in some ways, but he's certainly certainly a tough guy when it comes to facing people who have the power to kill him. Um, y- you know, all of this stuff feeds into the culture, and, and I feel that there's a natural connection to this conversation and the appearance of Zelensky and this kind of sudden idea that, you know, war, I always see that bumper sticker, war is not the answer. And I always think, well, what's the question? Uh, You know, because suddenly you get the Democrats are, uh, you know, calling for war. There's a connection between this and another article you were writing about, which is a subject that really interests interests me, which is the, the Disney Corporation. Now, the Disney Corporation has just gotten into a kerfuffle because they're uh, in Florida. I mean, Disneyland is in Florida. And in Florida, Brian DeSantis is trying to stop teachers from grooming children for sexual perversion. I mean, that's basically what's going on. He's got he's got this thing that they call that the left calls the "Don't Say Gay" bill, but it is really an anti-groomer bill to stop teachers from talking to six and seven year olds about their sexuality, which no one should be doing. Uh, so, what what happened to Disney in this case? Well, you know, it's kind of a complicated story because we tend to look at these being very simple uh, rollouts of events, and in this case, it wasn't. In the past, Disney has been pretty activist, particularly under former chief CEO Bob Iger. But he retired uh, last year and a new chief is in. And that man's name is Bob Chapik. Well, Bob Chapik is known for being nonpartisan. He's known for wanting business to stick to business. He didn't come up through the very leftist studio system. He came up through parks and consumer products. So he had a different way of doing things. And he made it very clear he did not want Disney to get involved in this skirmish. Well, left-wing activists in Disney did what they did, and they immediately ran to the press. They immediately put out statements all over social media and began pressuring him. At that point, former CEO Bob Iger also put a statement on social media that made it very clear that he would have been happy to put out a statement condemning the bill on behalf of Disney. So all of this put this new leadership in a really awkward position. And at first, it seemed like they were going to stand strong. But then what happened was that um, shareholders began speaking up as well. And you started to see not just the bad press, but you started to see activist groups like the Human Rights Campaign, like GLAAD say, we're gonna start scoring you politically. And they knew that that was going to harm their investor class and they were gonna start hearing from them. So Bob Iger very quickly shifted gears He apologized. He tried to donate money to the human rights campaign who, you know, in a big grandstanding show said, we're not going to take your dirty Disney money. And he he essentially said, I'm going to try to talk to Ron DeSantis about this. Now, in this case, Ron DeSantis did the right thing and told Disney to pound sand. But that hasn't always been the case. And so this is an issue that conservatives are going to have to confront, that the left has moved on from winning elections. They've even moved on from trying to influence entertainment content from within. We've seen that, you look at Disney and you look at the LGBT content that has started to appear in a lot of their films and television shows, many of it, much of it for children. And I think that's what's really disturbing to a lot of people. 
at the same time they are doing that, they're starting to move on in a way that goes, we don't, we don't really worry about that anymore. It, we don't care about empowering girls anymore. Now the girl power movement became very big in the Disney movies. We saw that with the princess movies. But I think that that is all kind of an old conversation and it's time for us to go, wow, they, this whole illustration of what happened in Florida tells us that they're, they're not messing around with that anymore. They're now going directly to, we are going to try to influence legislation. Wow. You know, the, the thing is that they show up at these board meetings and we don't. The conservatives don't show up and, and pressure Disney. So if they're going to cave, they're going to cave to the left. You, you know, one of the things that, and, and by the way, we should point out that the hypocrisy here is deep because these LG, the LGBT content that appears in Disney stuff is taken out when they go to China and when they send when they send their movies to China, which they shouldn't be doing in the first place. So it's a completely amoral action that they're taking. It has nothing to do with virtue, with actual virtue. But you know, Walt Disney said. Whatever success I have, this is a, a quote from Walt Disney, whatever success I've had in bringing clean, informative entertainment to people of all ages, I attribute in great part to my congregational upbringing and my lifelong habit of prayer. There's no way that the current Disney Corporation can turn to the spirit of Walt Disney and say that we are continuing in that tradition. Where did that, how did this happen? What, why did they lose that track of bringing clean entertainment uh, to America and get off in this LGBT thing. I mean, it seems a very deep part now of Disney culture is gay culture. Well, and I think a part of that is just simply that you have much more committed activists on the left than the right. I think on the left, you have people who, that is their religion. That is what they are committed to doing in life. And on, on the right, you have people who are conservative and they care about politics, but they care more about raising their families, building businesses. There's just much more interest in living life. It's, it's not your faith. It's not your religion. And you look at Disney over the years and you go, Glad in particular has had a deep commitment to getting involved in the studio system. At this point, they have uh, consulting arrangements with all of these studios and networks where they're invited to come in and consult on scripts, to consult on casting. And so they've been doing all this. And that's why I say they've been doing this for years. So they have already sort of achieved so much of what they wanted to achieve by getting involved with all of these studios and networks. That's why they're moving on to going, now how do we leverage our relationships with these businesses, these companies, and turn them into political organizations overtly, not covertly through our content, but overtly through forcing them to pressure politicians, pressure other businesses, pressure school board, pressure everyone. I mean, that's what's been really interesting is that we're turning into this really bizarre sort of corporate cronyism society rather than a, an elected democracy. So, you know, uh, yeah. But, you well, know, anyway, they, and we can't make all the, and that's part of the problem with, the, you, you said, Andrew, that we need to start using our influence as shareholders, our influence as investors. And that's really the key because I go, we can't make all the companies. Jeremy Boring is trying, but we can't make every soda. We <laughs> yeah. can't make, yeah. but at some point we go, we have to find another way to influence business. Yeah, they have to know we're there. They have to know that we are also the audience. I, I mean, there's, there's those old evangelicals, the Jerry Falwells and all that, who everybody cursed and said they were prudes and they were uh, uh, too uh, stiff-backed, but they were saying that, uh, you know, the gays have an agenda and they're coming after our children. 
Clearly not true of all gays, but there is this segment of the gay population that is absolutely uh, intent on reaching children and uh, turning their heads around. Um, as a mom, you take your kids to these, I mean, I, my daughter loves Disney princesses when I would take her to D Disney princess, but I was taking her to The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. They were good films. Has that changed when you take your kids to Disney movies now? Do you feel safe? Do you feel, or do you feel that maybe uh, they're getting fed bad stuff? No, I don't. And, you know, it's funny because now you've gotten to this place where you go, I have to find resources. I have to find someone I can trust who has pre-screened this movie and is going to tell me what's in it. And not even just a general overview. I think there's a reason that with moms, some of these websites like Common Sense Media, Kids in Mind, that go into explicit detail. Okay, these two characters kiss. This character touches this character's backside. This is how many, you know, quick lines of sexual references are in them. Mm because there's so much of it now in places you don't expect. I mean, you don't expect a gay pride parade from a preschool show, but that's what you're getting. You're getting it from Nickelodeon. You're getting it from, you're getting it from Disney junior, which is for kids who aren't even in school yet. So yeah, no, you don't trust it at all. And that's really sad. And you have to think that Walt Disney wouldn't you know, feel great about where his company is today. Well, I hope some of the uh, moms who are showing up at these school boards will start showing up at these uh, board meetings as well, because it really is uh, sinister and uh, and should be stopped. Megan Basham, you know, you're doing great work. You, you really are. Your stuff, I'm reading all your stuff, and it's just a great cultural coverage, which I'm just thrilled to see because I think we need more of it. Anyway, we will talk again next month. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So we've been talking today about flagrant manhood. That brings us to rockauto.com, because when you say rockauto.com, everybody knows you have flagrant manhood because you're smart enough to get auto parts, not by sitting in your car that doesn't run because you need auto parts and pretending to drive to a store that doesn't know anything more about auto parts than you do. You get them at rockauto.com on your computer in their fantastic catalog with their excellent, excellent prices. Why is it that women flock to men who say rockauto.com? Partly it's just the sound, I mean, it just sounds like that. You hear what I'm saying, you know, anybody would flock to it, but also it's they know you're smart enough to fix your cars, getting everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet right in your computer. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, you can get everything you need at excellent prices. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck right Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know I sent you, but you got to write it in the same way. Clavin, yeah, yeah. You know, I can tell you for a fact that there are many excellent books out there that are too controversial for your average publisher, but they're not too controversial for The Daily Wire. That's why we started our own publishing wing called DW Books, and we're proud to be publishing books that are actively fighting the left's monopoly on storytelling. The first book, is 12 Seconds in the Dark by Sergeant Mattingly. This book is the true story of what really happened the night of the tragic Breonna Taylor shooting. Mattingly, a 20-year police veteran, takes readers inside his department's response and debunks the lies that have recklessly been shared with the public. It was very chaotic, it was very quick. Instantly, I knew I was shot. Breonna Taylor, she was caught in the crossfire of those bullets. As soon as your brain's registering, it's already over. The media got so many things wrong in this case, saying we had the wrong apartment, her name wasn't on the warrant, she was shot and killed in her sleep, in her bed. These are lies, this is not true, and all the while you're hearing all these outside influences from 
athletes and Oprah and Ellen DeGeneres and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, all those people coming and attacking you, putting your name on their account saying he should be in prison. All these things that they have no idea what they're talking about, but they have such influence. The more we attack police for doing their job, the less good qualified police you're gonna have. When you read 12 Seconds in the Dark, you will find out the truth of what really happened the night of the Breonna Taylor raid. Wow, that really looks powerful. And in a world where voices like his are censored, this story is incredibly important. And we're so grateful to have this brave truth teller on board. The book is available now on Amazon or anywhere you buy books online. So go order your copy today. I can promise you it will sell out. So you all know at this point that The Daily Wire does not stop creating awesome new content. We're super excited about our latest docuseries, Fauci Unmasked. The show exposes the most successful failure in government history, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and it's hosted by our very own Michael Knowles. He'll peel back the mask on Fauci's past and show the world's leading scientist for what he really is, a fraud. The third and final episode dropped this morning. In it, Michael exposes the final layer of Fauci's unnatural rise to the authoritarian top. It is seriously good. Check out this sneak peek. He's the highest paid employee in our federal government. And beginning in the spring of 2020, Dr. Fauci began to set national policy that affected the way that 330 million Americans lived their lives. For goodness sakes, I'm telling you wear a mask, keep social distancing, there's nothing political about that. But who is Anthony Fauci? People who have conspiracy theories, those are people that don't particularly care for me. In this short series, we will do what the establishment media have refused to do. We will give you an unvarnished look at the career of the most powerful politician in America, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Don't you think it's time that you step down and let someone else who has a more effective message? <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> Go get them, Knowles. The last part of the three-part series is streaming now, and it's available exclusively at The Daily Wire. If you're not a member yet, head to dailywire.com slash subscribe to join today. The show is excellent, and since we're only adding more content every day, you do not want to miss it. One of the uh, places where our values are both under threat and possibly uh, protected is, of course, the Supreme Court. We've got a new uh, choice from our pal, President Biden, and I wanted to bring on somebody who actually knows what she's talking about when it comes to the court. Carrie Severino is the president of the Judicial Crisis Network. She's a former law clerk to the great Justice Clarence Thomas and the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, uh, Justice on Trial with Molly Hemingway, which is terrific. If you have not read it, it's about the Brett Kavanaugh uh, chaos. And uh, it, it is a really a, a terrific book. You should pick it up. Carrie, thanks so much for coming on. It's good to see you. It's great to be here. Thank you. First of all, before we start talking about Biden's pick. What is the Judicial Crisis Network? 
So we were a group founded in 2005 to help make sure that judges could be confirmed who were going to be faithful to the Constitution and the rule of law. That was kind of when one of the many waves of Democrat opposition to conservative judges was happening. There was a lot of filibustering of judges at the time. And as we've seen, of course, it just keeps on going. And then with the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, we saw kind of it taking to a new level. So uh, we're just here in season and out to make sure that uh, we're keeping an eye on the kinds of judges who are who are delivering justice in our country. Excellent. All right. So Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, we, we, we know that she's a black woman. We know she was going to be a black woman. We know she was chosen uh, for to some degree for her blackness and her womanhood. Uh, but she almost seems like a stealth candidate. She has that kind of Barack Obama um, mystery where I, I don't know how much record she has. What what do we know about her? Oh, well, here's one thing we know. The president, obviously, he committed to appointing a black woman. So he had a list, a short list that he was looking at, all, all black women. And of that list, all of the top candidates we're talking about, she was clearly the most radical, the most extreme pick on that list. So he's going to try to pitch her as this nice, moderate, down the middle of the road kind of person. Don't be fooled. Every every time, 10 out of 10, the Democrats appoint someone who's a radical, and she is no exception. So it, I think it's going to be challenging, though, because you're right. Well, she does have a lengthy judicial record. She's been sitting on the district court for eight years and then almost a year now on the Court of Appeals uh, for the D.C. Circuit. So she's been a federal judge for now almost nine years. Uh, she hasn't had cases that grappled in a, in a serious way with constitutional provisions. And oddly, she views this as kind of a feature, not a bug. So when, when Senator Cruz was talking to her during a confirmation hearing just in the last year for the DC circuit, he asked her, do you believe in this you know, living constitution thing? We, you know, you know, you're familiar with the concept where judges, you don't have to read what the text says so much as we breathe into it, new life in each generation, et cetera. She didn't just say, you know, yes or no. She said, well, I haven't really had cases that dealt with the Constitution, so I haven't had the opportunity to develop a constitutional philosophy. And you're like, whoa, this woman's been sitting in a life tenured federal judicial position for eight years at that point, And still it hasn't occurred to her to think about how to interpret the Constitution. That was something that I, I assumed anyone who'd taken con law in law school would be trained in, in doing. So I think we're, what we're going to see is someone who is truly has a has radical positions. And we do have some examples of that in her record, but also is going to try to portray themselves as, oh, I just haven't thought about this. To my mind, I hadn't thought about the Constitution also isn't a really good, you know, thing to say during your Supreme Court hearings. So I'm really curious to see if she has developed a constitutional theory in the last year, how she's going to play that. But also happy to talk about some of the radical points in her record that give us that that hint, if you guys want to hear those. So this it worries me because I remember Barack Obama with all those votes where he didn't cast a vote or he just stayed back out of it. And then he ran the first time as a moderate. And he was, of course, a very radical president. So I'm kind of worried that that's what's happening. So, yes, I would like to hear what what are what's your evidence that she is a radical? Yeah. And, and of course, Joe Biden did the same thing. Right. He, oh, even though he did have a long record, he just, oh, I'm nice. This nice middle of the road guy. And then he says, I'm going to govern as the most progressive president in history. And he's doing his best or whoever's whoever's running the country is doing is doing their best. So, you know, here's here are some of these ex examples that I look to in her record, apart from her own statement that she has no constitutional philosophy. She has you know, some people have talked about her rate of reversal. So when you're a district court judge, you're at the trial level and then you have the appellate judges that can review your cases. She is at a a very 
exceptionally high rate of reversal from her time when she was a district judge by the appeals court. Now it's the appeals court that she sits on. Um, that in and of itself in a vacuum might not be a bad thing. You know, if you're in the Ninth Circuit, which is completely out to lunch crazy, maybe it's a badge of honor that you have a high reversal rate. That is not the case in the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit is overwhelmingly Democrat appointees. Obama did a real number on that circuit, appointed a ton of people. This is a liberal circuit she's in. So she is being reversed, not by conservatives, but by judges who are themselves very liberal. So this isn't just a mismatch of you know, your, your approach to the law and some of the cases and the reason she's being overturned are very troubling. So in the DC circuit, you get a lot of cases that have to do with regulatory law because DC, you know, all the government's there that anytime there's a regulation or an executive order, that's a problem. That's when they get sued. She had several of these during the Trump era, and she was repeatedly reversed for going beyond her jurisdiction in political ways to strike down Trump era regulations, executive orders, et cetera, um, including by some of the most liberal members of the court. So just to take one example, for example, a case called Make the Way New York. It was an immigration case had to do with DHS regulations governing who could be subject to expedited removal. And uh, this in, in this case, she did a few things that I think are real red flags. One is instead of just confining herself to the facts and the law, she took a long time out to give this huge lecture on the significance of immigration, going into the real policy questions. That is not the job of a judge. A judge should be looking at the law. They should be treating a regulation the same, whether they agree with the policy or disagree with the policy. Does it comport with the law? Right. So she clearly got got in in deep on the policy side of this case. But then when she actually made her determination, she was reversed by the D.C. Circuit because she got it completely wrong as this is issue wasn't even one that judges are allowed to consider. This is one that the statute says that the Secretary of Homeland Security or, uh, gets to decide this question and judges don't get to insert themselves in it. So she as a judge inserts herself into a question in a political way to get to the political result that she thinks is correct. That is absolutely the worst thing you can do as a judge. And we have we have other cases that she has done that in as well, a public sector union case, kind of similar thing. And, and again, overturned by a panel that included one of the most liberal just judges on that circuit, someone who has long been considered a Supreme Court shortlister uh, in Democrat circles as well. Again, went beyond her authority. Another case uh, that had to do with when Don McGahn, then White House counsel, was subpoenaed by the House Judiciary Committee, she voted to force him to testify, despite the fact that the president said, no, I don't want you to testify. So she she first of all just, you know, gave very short shrift to the president's uh, ability to control his own uh, information and, and, and counsel in that case, but then also went off on a diatribe against President Trump, basically said he thought he was a king and didn't understand the role of a president. Very intemperate language for a judge to use. And this is these are all sorts of the things that, that make you go, this is not someone who really understands how to be a restrained judge. This is someone who is viewing this as a political role. And of course, she's going to say she doesn't when she's before the Judiciary Committee. But I would say, let's look at the actual evidence. And we have a lot of that evidence. You know, today in the in the Federalist, in Molly's paper, uh, my pal Rachel Bovard wrote a terrific piece, uh, basically processing Josh Hawley's release of information, which he says shows that she is lenient uh, toward child sex offenders. Now, I don't know what it is about leftism and child sex. It's like, I, I'm not sure what the link between socialism and pedophilia are, is, but like, is that something that you have noticed? Do you, do you think that that's a legitimate beef? Uh, yeah, you know, you'd think this should be an easy, you know, cross the aisle thing we can all agree on. 
Yeah. Child porn, not good, right? Um, but she has, and she had, she has had spent a lot of time doing criminal defense work, and in that time, has made some really out there arguments. Some of the ones that I thought was the craziest is this guy. He's not really doing it because he's a pedophile. He's collecting this because he's sort of just a collector. And it's like you know, I collect state quarters, you collect stamps, he collects child porn, whatever. I mean, that's crazy. And yeah. or, or one with it was like, well, he's not really into getting it. He, it's just sort of the challenge of this kind of someone who wants to learn about how to deal with computers. And it's it's a good challenge to figure out how do I download things that are illegal because children are being molested in the picture. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you can help make some sense of that. But I, I think these are that's a really extreme position. And when you're a, an attorney, you do have to zealously defend your client. That is correct. But there is a limit beyond which it's like, you know what? You have to make arguments that are that are colorable, that make sense. You know, if you went up there and said, no, it's OK, because child porn is good. That would not be an OK argument, even zealously defending your client. And that's the kind of thing that you're saying. Is this really what you believe? I mean, that that is very, very troubling. I, I find that troubling, too. You you wrote I think it was in The Hill. You wrote saying that you're fairly certain that she's going to be confirmed. Uh, well, first of all, why? Why is that? Why do you think that's true? Uh, well, you know what? There's a, there's a saying, elections have consequences. And people often use it to say, oh, well, the president got elected, so we have to vote for everyone wants. I don't think that's what that means. I think what it means is elections and, and our constitution says judges are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, right? All of those elections should have consequences. So I, I think the Senate elections, what we're seeing here is unfortunately the consequences of the 2020 Senate elections. And right now, the reality is we have 50 Democrat senators who, unfortunately, even though they're there every once in a while, we do get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema standing up in ways that I could. I'm very glad they didn't allow President Biden to pack the Supreme Court. That would have been a disaster. So, yay, they can recognize that about once a year. Joe Manchin finds a nominee that is just beyond the pale, even for him and votes against them. So that's great. They have voted for every single one of Biden's extremist nominees to the courts. So I, I, I hope there be, would be some way to try to get them to um, see the reality in this in this case. You know, maybe uh, Jackson doesn't have a lot of time to prep for this hearing. They have really foreshortened the time frame on this. Maybe she won't be sufficiently mooted and she'll go up there and say something like, I think all fossil fuels should be eliminated. That would be great. Maybe then, maybe then we could get Joe Manchin's vote against her. If you, if you live in Arizona, in West Virginia, and frankly, there's a lot of Democrat states where I would think they're not. Why? Why would you want to endorse someone who is going to be really extreme on the court on every issue down the line? And that's why she was nominated. You know, they nominated her because yeah. she was the most extreme, and she had the most support from the deep pockets of the dark money left, who are just out there extreme. So she passed their vetting tests. That should be case number one for why if you, you know, if you have a Democrat senator in your area, call, let them know, you know what, this is not okay. I know they have a D next to their name, but that doesn't make it an okay nominee back to the drawing board. You know, I want to talk to you about the dark money in a minute, but, but first, one of the things we keep hearing from the Senate, when, when this nominee first was announced, some of the trolls and, and funny people on the right were immediately said, she sexually assaulted me. You know, they, just, they just started to throw that up on Twitter uh, as a joke. But in fact, the serious, if, I, if, I, if that's the word I want, the serious people in the Senate say they're not going to do the kind of thing that the left did to Kavanaugh. Are we wrong about that? Are we wrong not to take that tack? I mean, the, the left has just used this scorched 
earth policy against Kavanaugh. It was absolutely shameful, and yet the right is always restrained. Is that just a question of being the good guy, or is it a strategic error? Well, I think there's parts of it that are the good guy and parts of parts of being good guys that that verges into strategic error. Should we ever make up stories about her from when she was a teenager and you know go crazy about it? No, that we should never we should never lie. We should never have conduct a smear campaign against someone personally. Right. That that just should be beyond the pale because we're humane people um, at the other at the other end, though. It, what concerns me is there historically there was a a. a policy of much more deference towards Supreme Court nominees that, you know, you kind of, you voted for people as long as they were qualified, you know, as long as they met the minimum qualifications, you would vote for the president because again, this goes, I think the wrong interpretation of the elections have consequences thing of like, okay, the president was elected. He gets to appoint whoever he wants. Yeah. You you know, the the senators also take an oath to uphold the constitution. I think they have to fulfill that. And I don't think they can just vote for anyone. But even if you thought that was a good model, that model is gone. It was blown up under Joe Biden's own leadership. So Robert Bork, I think, is where most people would look back and say, this is where things really took a turn. And now we're looking at Supreme Court nominations differently. And guess who was Senate Judiciary Committee chair? The ringleader of that whole circus, Joe Biden. And then they took an even further turn for the worse with Justice Thomas's confirmation. Again, that was that was personal life smear campaign, you know, case case in point number one. And Guess who was running the Judiciary Committee chair, who presided over all of that, who said he didn't really believe what Anita Hill was saying, but he let it go out there and as a national TV you know, phenomenon anyway, Joe Biden. So we've seen Joe Biden actually help lead the nation in this. And then, as I, as I alluded to earlier, in, in, the 20, in the early 2000s under Bush, guess who helped pioneer the idea of even using a filibuster as a partisan filibuster against uh, judicial nominees and even appellate nominees? We're not even talking about Supreme Court nominees, which eventually he tried to. He tried to filibuster Justice Alito. That was Joe Biden. He was part of that whole process. He's filibustering judges left and right. And now you're going to have him saying, oh, well, let's just be nice. Let's play, you know, play patty cake here. I'm sorry. There's there's a difference between doing a smear campaign in a person, which I don't want to do, but we can't just vote for whoever comes by because they have a pulse and a law degree. And we can't just say, well, I disagree with this person, but he or she is a nice person or, and, or I had a nice conversation with them for 20 minutes in my office. And so I'm going to vote for them. Again, senators have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States. If you have someone before you who you can be reasonably certain is going to misinterpret that document, it potentially radically changing the the nature of our country and how our law is looked at, or who won't tell you how they would interpret that document. I don't know how you can in good faith vote for that person for the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court. So I think we need to have a serious conversation about her judicial philosophy, about what she would do on the court and not just let her pass while still being civil and kind about it, but, you know, saying, I'm so sorry, we can't have someone on the Supreme Court that is going to do violence to our founding document. Now, reasonable answer. Uh, now, you you wrote about this dark money, and you named a fund. I think I forgot to write the name of the fund down. Uh, can you tell me more about this? What What is this, and what do they do? Yeah, the, the group I was talking about was Arabella Advisors. And this Arabella. is a group we really started looking into during the Kavanaugh confirmation, because it was clear that that campaign didn't—this It was. This is not— believe it or not, just grassroots people coming out of nowhere, walking to D.C. to, to try to protest. No, it was a very well-funded campaign. And as you started you know, pulling the threads, you realize there's this group behind all of it and behind a whole lot more called Arabella Advisors. It is a, a you know, this this advisor fund. They have all these different groups underneath them. There's 
huge layers, but it's an umbrella network of dark money organizations that now research, including the New York Times itself writing a piece, which is good for them. It uncovered that in the last election cycle, they spent over a billion dollars to help get Democrats elected. So this is a huge group that only recently has started to come to light. They used to try to pretend that dark money is just like this Republican thing. And it's kind of a, a, a naughty word that we that we smear Republican 501c4 groups with. Now we realize that if, if, if they really were concerned about groups that whose, whose donors are not disclosed under tax law, you'd be much more concerned about Arabella advisors. And what's concerning to me isn't isn't their tax status. You know, that's 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 fine. That's legitimate. But what they're standing for and the way that they they create these like pop up groups on every sort of issue. So it looks like we've got, you know, Minnesotans for for healthcare, and you've got Floridians for healthcare, and you've got Texans for healthcare. And it turns out they're all just, you know, different shingles hung up by by the same network. Well, some of the most radical groups on the left were also started by Arabella advisors. And one of them, Demand Justice, has really made a name for itself for taking just horribly bad takes and decisions on Supreme Court issues. You know, again, going back to the, the Kavanaugh confirmation. But, for example, they're some of the one of the big groups behind the court packing thing. So, you know. A lot of people scratching their head going, this is something that's not popular with the American people. The polling is really bad at it. Why are suddenly all these Democrats saying they're in love with it? Well, guess what? A billion dollars gets you something. And it gets you a lot of people embracing a radical policy that's way to the left of the electorate. They also are the group that really first identified Katanji Brown Jackson and put her on the map. They had this Supreme Court shortlist uh, they put together even before Biden won the election. And the list was really interesting because it included almost no judges on it because what they didn't though they wanted were people who are like straight out of all these activist groups so they've got people from every single liberal you know advocacy group on there and then they threw in a few justices for judges for good measure turns out Katanji Brown Jackson was one of them and she got onto the list right after I, I believe it was the McGann decision that she came and like oh wait here's someone you know that was a great audition piece for her to get onto their radar and they have been really pushing hard to get her in there. And they have very good connections in the White House. For example, the lawyer in the White House uh, counsel's office who handles judicial nominations. This is like the person you want to know if you want to be a federal judge in a Biden administration. She used to work at Demand Justice. So do you think they're getting heard in the inner sanctum? I think so. Uh, there's Jen Psaki, who all of you uh, hear way too much about probably. She used to work for Demand Justice. So they, they have kind of tentacles all over the place. And they have a lot of influence, uh, not because they have good ideas, unfortunately, but because they have deep pockets. Carrie Severino, uh, you know, I'm really glad you came on. This has been an education. I hope you will come back again and talk about it more. The president of the Judicial Crisis Network, a former law clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas, and again, the co-author with Molly Hemingway of Justice on Trial, which really was a terrific book. Carrie, thanks so much. I hope to talk to you again. Great. Thanks. We all want to change the world, of course, but we have to begin with ourselves. Uh, that means getting rid of your problems. That's what we are here for because it is time now for the mailbag. Woo! Ukraine for life. Well, you know what I mean, for a couple weeks till we get the next one. Yeah! <laughs> it's that level of commitment that makes our hearts sing. All right, from Nick. Uh, I have been a cop in Cleveland, Ohio for almost 10 years, and I've had a successful and decorated career thus far. So needless to say, I love what I do. I have a long family history of civil service. I feel as if I'm in a dying profession. I know society will always need police, and poli but politics has destroyed the nobility of the badge. My question is, how do you know when it's time to leave a career and start a new one? I'm a young man, just turned 30, and have an almost two-year 
uh, two, it must be two, two-year-old babies kind of cut, uh, cut out, and lovely wife. Uh, thank you for your time, and I can't wait for the truth and beauty. Well, thanks, Nick, and thanks, thanks for what you do. Uh, you know, I've dealt with police all my life because as a crime writer, I've always, I was always interviewing them. They are among my favorite people. They are also the funniest people I've ever met because people who deal with um, all that bad stuff have to develop a sense of humor. And I've always said, you know, we always talk about the risks police officers take, and they do take risks. I mean, I, I have ridden, gone out and rides with the police, and it's it's scary when you get called up and you don't know whether there's a gun uh, and you have to walk into these situations. Um but, but really, I think the thing that we really ask them to do is we ask them to look at reality in ways that we don't. The things that police officers see, the things that they know people do to one another uh, are things that we don't like to think about. We like to think that we're all nice people uh, and, and the, the level of corruption at, at even, in even nice people. Police see it all, and it's, it's very tough. And my answer, and I know, and I know that politicians have abandoned the police in a shameless, shameless way. What they do is they create the situations in which crime is committed and then say, oh, it's the police fault for arresting all these people, which is just uh, obscene. My answer to you, though, has to do with, you say you, you love what you do um, and have a long family history of civil service. My, my answer to you is, when do you change? You change when you stop loving it, when it stops being a joy to you to go to work, uh, when it's just drudgery, when you feel, you say that uh, politics has destroyed the nobility of the badge. If you actually feel that way, I don't believe that because I believe the nobility of the badge comes from you. But if you actually feel like that, then it might be time to go. If you still feel that you can do the job that you set out to do, even with all the troubles, and there are troubles, but you still love it, then you stay. If you feel like, no, they have made it so awful, I've got to go, then you go. You're not obligated to stay. It is, you should be there. I mean, joy is the way God tells you you're in the right place. When you feel it, joy doesn't mean you're happy every day to go to work. It means that you love your job. When you love your job, you should stay. When you don't anymore, uh, you should leave. And that's the best I can give you because I don't know what your experience is, experience is. But remember, the nobility of the badge comes from you. It doesn't come from the politicians. The politicians never give nobility to anything. Uh, from and. Andrea or Andrea, uh, I'm having a spiritual crisis. My son has special needs and has been really struggling since COVID lockdown started. I find myself so angry with God. If all children are made in his image, then why is my child struggling? Uh, don't get me wrong. I love my son more than life itself, but I see other people with their children with no issues, and it makes me more angry that this is the life given to my son. I am lost on what to do and how to move past this resentment building inside of me. All right. Um, well, first of all, I'm sorry for your troubles. It's a genuine trouble, and I'm really sorry about it. Um, you know, it's all right to be angry with God. I mean, I, you know, you should bring that anger to him and, and express it to him. Uh, I, he will answer you and hopefully, uh, you know, help you with it. But, I, you know, he's not going to punish you for it. He understands why you're angry, uh, and uh, he knows your anger already. And I think it's something that you should bring to him in prayer, uh, and, and you will get a response. Meanwhile, meanwhile, while you're doing that, also I try a mental exper experiment. Um, you know, all of us have children that we dreamed of in our minds who our children can't be. Uh, you know, some of us get close and that's joyful. Uh, some of us don't get close. There's a child in your mind who was not born to you, who does not have these special needs, uh, that you have the right to grieve. You have the right to grieve for that child, that that child didn't come into being. And maybe what I would say is you can grieve for that child, weep for that child, weep for the child that you could have had but didn't have, while loving the child that you have. Because, of course, it's not his fault that, you know, he, he is in the situation that he's in. And 
what you're doing, of course, is higher than noble. It's high. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, God sees what you're doing, and 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 you. It is it is all all right to mourn the child that you didn't have while loving the child and bravely living the life that you do have. It is it is all right to mourn the life you didn't have. The world is a sad place, but when you pour that love into it, you will find that life in this sad place can be extraordinarily beautiful. So believe me, I, you know I understand, and I know God understands your anger, uh, and and I think that anger in some ways is a mask for grief, and so that's why I say you should try letting that grief out, uh, letting yourself mourn for the life that you don't have. Uh, we all have to do this at some point because none of us gets the life of our dreams. That that's not the way life works, but. But you, you can mourn for the life you have while loving, while facing the life that you do have with courage uh, and with love. And I, that's, that is an experiment you should try because I think it will change the way you look at it. Um, from Jody, I'm a conservative in a family of left-leaning liberals. We have ma- I know the feeling. We have managed this situation well by agreeing not to talk politics. I love my family and they love me. However, in the past few months, as I've watched the world burn, largely due to Biden's incompetence, I feel resentment rising toward those who voted for him, including my family. My live and let live attitude is fraying. How does one continue to respect people who voted so foolishly and unleash such pain and suffering on the world? Are your fond feelings toward liberal friends challenged when the consequences of their beliefs and votes result in such dire consequences? No, I'm, I, they actually aren't. I mean, uh, my, I, I lose some feeling for people when they're, um, when they actually are out for bad ends. You know, when they're actually out for bad things. Uh, but I know that most Democrats are voting the way their parents voted. Uh, they're voting according to rhetoric. Uh, you know, the one thing Reagan, one of the many things Ronald Reagan said that is true is that it's it's not that uh, Democrats. Uh, don't know anything. It's that everything they know is wrong. And I have found that to be really true. I found that liberals simply do not, are not paying the same kind of attention that conservatives are paying to the facts. And we tell them that facts don't care about their feelings, but I don't think they know that what the facts are at all. Uh, they do not know that, you know, they don't read the theories of the left and they think like, well, you know, yeah, I kind of, I kind of see why a teacher should talk about sexuality. And they don't understand that really they are grooming our children uh, for pedophilia. And I, why there is some weird, maybe it's just because they want to destroy everything that God loves. I don't know. But what the connection between socialism and pedophilia is, I don't know, but there does seem to be one. And, and so the left doesn't realize what they're voting for. They think they're voting for lunch bucket, bucket Joe. They're convinced by the rhetoric that we're hateful. They're awful. They don't know any of us. They never see any of us on TV. We are banned from any place they want to go. They don't see us in, in movies. They don't see us on TV shows. They just know that we're hateful, evil, Bible-thumping, crazy people. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I feel for them in their ignorance. I know their intentions are good. And if, if this is your family, uh, especially, I think that um, I, I think that you know they they deserve your love, and you'll be happier loving them than you will be punishing them for for disagreeing with you. Fight the fight, fight the political fight, and love your family um, if you can. Uh, from Nicole, I'm a 21-year-old Christian woman, recently found out that my father watches pornography. I've lost most, if not all, of my respect for him. I was raised in a Christian household, but my parents are, quite frankly, mostly nominal Christians and do not love each other. They were married and had children quite late in life in their mid to late 40s and have, ever since I can remember, been constantly in tension, and ar- in tension with each other and argue with each other. They don't seem to respect each other and treat each other more like roommates. When I told my mother that I found out about my father's porn ha- habit, she dismissed it and said it was better than him having an affair. I don't know how to have 
of hope that there are good men out there and I don't know how to feel towards my father. Uh, you know, love and forgive your father. It's none of your, well, I won't say it's none of your business, but it's not your business to judge him. It is not your business to judge him. Uh, he's your father. Love him if he supported you, if he kept you fed and sent you through school. Uh, give him your love for that and just f forgive him. He is not representative of all men. All men look at some kind of, uh, usually look at some kind of tomfoolery uh, at some point in their lives, but not all men are actually just indulging in pornography. Uh, you know, you, you have to have some compassion here and also just remember that you are not the judge of your father. You are not the judge of your father. Uh, you are his daughter. If he doesn't abuse you, uh, if he's not hurting you, then you owe him to honor to honor him as your father and your mother. That is in the Bible, and uh, and you should do it. And and then you should move on and find a better man and a better relationship. You should learn from their mistakes and not make those same mistakes yourself. With that, I have to stop. I have to quit right there. That means the Clavenless weekend or week, the Clavenless week is upon you. Oh my God, how you can't survive that. I should just stop talking because you'll be plunged into darkness. There'll be wailing. There'll be gnashing of teeth, fires, flames weird, bizarre tortures, tortures uh, inflicted on you by guys with pitchforks. Ah, I can't even think about it. But if you should survive, we'll be back next Friday with The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, the New York Times admits in paragraph 24 of a story about Hunter Biden that his laptop was not Russian disinformation. Good thing the entire media banned it for a month leading up to the 2020 election. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm -hmm.